Excuse me, on behalf of the Hoover Institution, I'd like to welcome you all. Uh, I'm Peter Berkowitz, and uh, I'm, a, I'm a fellow here at the Hoover Institution. And it's uh, an honor for me to assist in the launch of a remarkable book, The Heroic Heart, Greatness Ancient and Modern, by a remarkable friend and colleague, Todd Lindbergh. Um, a word of introduction, or putting things in perspective. It's uh, here in Washington, there are a fair number of uh, really top flight journalists who are capable of writing quickly and colorfully and precision about the day's events. And there are plenty of policy analysts, top flight policy analysts, who are capable of stepping back, weighing the evidence, examining the data, exploring the costs and benefits, and analyzing the policy options, perhaps even advocating one or another. And there's some individuals in Washington who take, I shouldn't say several steps back, but look at things from up high, from a high latitude, in terms of the great ideas that have generated and been generated by our civilization, and look at the, day, the, the events of the day in terms of the principles that undergird our civilization. What's extremely unusual is to find somebody who does all three. And even more unusual is to find somebody capable of doing all three at the same time, in one place, in one book. Uh, Mr. Lindbergh over here has pulled that off. So it's a, it's a very unusual book we're here to discuss. Uh, my job here is uh, modest. I'm going to ask Todd a few questions which are designed to give him an opportunity to set forth the outlines of his argument and the highlights. And then uh, I want to open the floor to your questions. And if I get a sense that uh, Todd, through his gracefulness and his light touch, might be obscuring some of what's uh, truly provocative and controversial in his book, uh, I'll make sure to throw in a mischievous comment or question or two. So uh, without further ado, let me warm things up so that you all can ask a few questions. And say to Todd that um, I noticed in your book that uh, you provide several, along the way, several descriptions of what the, uh, of what the argument is about. One place you say that uh, your aim is to <coughs> discuss both the, show the similarities and differences between heroes, ancient and modern, and show how the hero affects politics and how politics is affected by the hero. There's another nice summary of what the book's about. This is from page six. I want to read it aloud to everybody. These are Todd's words from the introduction. A hero is someone with a claim to some kind of superiority. The modern world writ large, wherever it exists on the globe today, is democratic and egalitarian, a sensibility that has thoroughly taken hold among its residents, including ourselves. What kind of claim of superiority or greatness, then, is compatible with the modern world's democratic and egalitarian character? Well, to answer that question, Todd is also, Todd has to start, well, really, 
from the very, very, very beginning. So if you could tell us a little bit to help us understand the hero in the modern world, some thoughts on heroism in the ancient world and how we got to where we are today. Well, thanks very much, Peter, and thanks to everybody for coming out. Um, I think when I started this book, it was with a view in mind that something really had changed in the way we perceive heroes and heroism, and that um, in some respects, I think I began from a position in which I regarded the modern view of heroism as a kind of falling away from a sort of higher type of hero from the ancient world. Uh, essentially, uh, uh, a prejudice that I think has some, a lot of resonance with much of the philosophical tradition we inherit. Uh, that, you know, in the course of becoming democratic, in the course of becoming egalitarian, of course, the, the spread of this spirit, well, we may have elevated the bottom, but we also may have brought down the top a little as well, and maybe even substantially, uh, to a point at which, uh, you know, heroic achievement uh, of the kind uh, demonstrated in, uh, in the great stories from the past was no longer really a part of it. Uh, and this is not a, a false interpretation, uh, but it's also, I think, not the whole story. And what I found, uh, I think, really uh, is that we in the modern world, no less than uh, the ancient world, have ex among us uh, some number of extraordinary individuals who are no less willing to risk their lives. Uh, and uh, the, this helmet is a, a firefighter's helmet, and I think the 9-11 firefighter is probably the archetype of this modern face of heroism. Uh, charging into a building, burning building is not a good way to uh, uh, lengthen your odds of making it to dinner. Uh, and on that particular day, 364 New York firefighters didn't get home for dinner. Um, why do they do that? How, what, what, what animates them? Well, uh, camaraderie, uh, sense of, uh, uh, of duty. Uh, but if you ask any of them, and, and people do, uh, the survivors and, and people who save lives routinely uh, in, in this kind of hunt, what, 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 how, how do you become a hero? They'll deny it. They'll say, well, I'm no hero. I didn't do anything. So I'm just doing what I was trained to do. I'm just, uh, I was just, uh, they, they, they don't accord themselves any particular special status. Uh, they, they don't wear uh, epaulets that say, I am a hero. Uh, on the contrary, they're modest. They, uh, they declaim any particular great sense of achievement or responsibility. Uh, or, and and this, is, this is characteristic, I think. And this uh, type of heroism, uh, it seems to me, is very much shot through the sinews of... Uh, uh, of, of the modern world, and it is, in a way, uh, the modern version of uh, Achilles. We don't have a place for Achilles in the modern world. We don't really have the, uh, uh, we, we don't really have a spot for someone who is so suffused with his own <laughs> sense of superiority uh, that he becomes the biggest headache for the greatest king, Agamemnon, you know? Um, that type, we do not welcome among us. And in fact, if you, on your kids' schoolyards, find some child who's decided that he wants to take over the world, or she, um, you're probably going to give them some you know, bullying counseling or something like that in order to make sure things don't get subsequently out of hand. Um, 
so we, this, this sort of life-risking figure who acted out of a personal sense of virtue and greatness and ambition of the past uh, is given way, in a sense, uh, to a life-risking figure who acts out of a sense of service, uh, of uh, generosity, of, uh, of, of acting on behalf of others. And I think that, that, it's, that it's, it's important to remember that we still have uh, the cultural capacity uh, or social capacity to, for, for this type to, uh, to emerge, to come forth. For which type to? The saving the hero. The saving hero. Yes. Yeah. Well, well what, about, um, what about that uh, you refer to in the book as the slaying hero, mm -hmm. uh, Achilles, the hero from the, uh, the ancient world. What, what became of, of him? Uh, are human beings no longer born with the kind of ambition and pride and sense of great self? Does the modern world wash that right out of the soul? Need we uh, both not worry about such types, but also lament that they're no longer around? Well, I, th I think the, what we've done in the modern world is, is figure out a way to um, channel that kind of ambition uh, into something that is not politically, socially disruptive, but actually quite the opposite. It's a, in a way, it becomes the, the glue that holds things together. Um, it's, so I, you know, I, I think that the, where the, in, in the ancient world, there was not the opportunity uh, for this kind of, uh, uh, of uh, social uh, interaction. You know, what we had instead was a, uh, you know, a political order that was really in, in significant measure based on the rule of the strongest individual. And so you had a, uh, a contest, and political order was not only on, uh, was on the one hand about uh, getting to the top, and on the other, it was about trying to stay at the top. And, uh, and so the difficulty became uh, Agamemnon's difficulty with Achilles. You, you have the, uh, the a book, the Iliad, that depicts the greatest king and the greatest warrior, and unfortunately, they're not the same person. <laughs> and trouble arises very quickly uh, as a result of this. Um, and, and I think that uh, the modern world, by contrast, you know, we, we actually, we've drunk very deeply of these egalitarian waters. Uh, we still have and need uh, slaying heroes in the sense of people willing to risk their lives and also to kill. And we find them, uh, some of the most remarkable examples of those in our special operations forces, et cetera. And, uh, you know, this, this, is, uh, this is serious. But, you know, but they're not... Their aspiration is not to uh, unify the the, uh, uh, the golden horde and become Khan. You know, they're they're acting on behalf of a country, uh, 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 and, and in a way, again, a kind of action on behalf of others. So there's, excuse me. So they're still a kind of tamed, slaying hero. Tamed is uh, a, a term that I uh, have used in the book, and I think it's an important one particularly in the advance from the old days, you know, the, uh, uh, how do you get uh, somebody as uh, ambitious as, say, uh, Pompey the Great uh, to uh, uh, not to take over Rome? Well, I mean, you can, you shower him with honors. You, you, you call him Pompey the Great. <laughs> he, may, he, he himself may have referred to himself as Pompey the Great. 
Uh, he, he, has, uh, he had great uh, uh, triumphs, huge processions. You know, he was a rich man. Uh, he was the, uh, uh, there was nothing that he wanted that Rome didn't offer him, that, that, that Rome didn't contain for him. On the other hand, in fact, he was, you know, the, he was the person to whom Rome turned in its hour, or the Republic turned in its hour of greatest need. But that, again, just serves more or less to illustrate the problem, because Julius Caesar was exactly this kind of heroic type who, who's, who could not be tamed, for whom the accolades didn't matter all that much. They were a means to an end. The means uh, was, uh, uh, you know, he was perfectly prepared uh, to uh, give up great honor uh, in order to uh, act out his own ambition. You also have a... Um a fascinating interpretation of King Arthur and his round table about how this wonderful tale that so many of us grew up on uh, also represents a, uh, a key moment in the taming or, or the, is it, could we also say the transformation of the slaying hero into uh, saving hero? Yes, I think uh, it, it's a good um, description, in a way, the, the, the round table of the, of the birth of feudalism. Uh, and it goes like this. The king, who is the, the most powerful figure, uh, has decided that in order to show his uh, knights that he will not lord it over them, that rather than having a, a rectangular table at the head of which he will sit, he will have a round table. And they will all sit around the table. And then, so none of them will be particularly uh, 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 distant from the king, nor, nor, will they, nor will the king be asserting, by means of the furniture in the room, his superiority over them. And this was, uh, I think, quite a brilliant public relations stunt on the part of King Arthur, because there was no doubt around that table who the king was. Uh, it was Arthur. And there was no doubt that Arthur had his uh, favorites, like Sir Bedivere and Sir Gawain, and, uh, uh, and this was all uh, 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 well known, I think, to everybody in the room, not only to the favorites, but to the knights who were not the favorites. Uh, nevertheless, um, what you see is this decision on the part of a powerful king to grant his knights, his barons, his nobility, uh, a certain kind of direct claim to um, a higher status than others, um, and to have uh, a, a, a scenario in which uh, they are essentially beholden to him, uh, in a kind of one-on-one -on -one sense of the term. And what that does is uh, it enables the uh, king uh, to ensure that the disputes between the knights are actually disputes with the king, uh, which in turn prevents the elevation of a chief rival knight. Uh, it's, very, uh, it's very clever. And I think that uh, when, uh, when the, you know, the, the round table games were actually, the King Arthur story is, is, is a mythical story. We don't know the truth, but you know, as, as this book draws heavily on literary and other sources as well. Uh, it, I, it's, it's not a history. It's, uh, it's, a, it's an essay that develops some ideas about heroism uh, in the ancient and modern sense of the term. Uh, but notwithstanding the, uh, the mythical nature of this, we do know that there, that there were 
roundtable games held. Uh, they first got their name around the 10th century um, in honor of this arrangement that uh, King Arthur was said to have devised. And I always thought that, uh, uh, that, that uh, you know, if I were the king and I were watching the, the people who potentially posed the greatest danger to my crown, uh, jousting with each other, that, that that would be a very good day for me. <laughs> um, in the very opening lines of the book, you say something quite provocative. You say that in a sense you've been working on this book all your life, you just didn't realize it until a certain point. So um, I want to ask you a question about uh, the sources, the, the inspirations of the book. There's a there's a personal dimension to it. There's a philosophical dimension. You, as a student of uh, philosophy, weave that in. And there's a political dimension. So uh, first, if you could say a few words, the book is, uh, is, has woven into it personal anecdotes about how you encountered heroism really in, in everyday life. Say something about those stories and how they, how they fed into the production of this book. You know, I think I would date the, uh, the, the I, I, I have been working on some of these things. And in fact, uh, uh, it was sort of interesting reading some of the things I'd written 30 years ago, which have uh, <laughs> weighed into this. Often, by the way, I've changed my mind on some important points since then, but, uh, but still. Uh, but I, I think the proximate cause was probably a Thanksgiving dinner at uh, uh, my in-law's house, my wife is here, and uh, present at this dinner was uh, uh, my wife's uncle, David, uh, who was then an Ocean Township uh, police officer. And uh, he had a uh, pretty interesting story to tell. Uh, he responded, it was the middle of the night, it was, uh, I think it was actually, uh, was, was it on Sukkot? It might have been. <laughs> um, there was a house fire. Um, and he was the first one on the scene. It was a, a big family, big Jewish family. Um, and it had, it had started as a result of a, of a candle sort of burning down and then shattering the glass on a, on a coffee table and then the wax and then the whole thing went up like a house of a real. So the family was all out in the yard. And they were, obviously everybody was confused. They'd been asleep, disoriented. Um, and the, they told him that everybody had made it out, but he heard something. And um, so he decided he'd better go have a look. Now, the front of the house is completely engulfed in flames. So he goes around the back and uh, doesn't hear anything at this point, but you know, he, he heard what he heard the first time. And um, so he crawled, pulled up in the back door, crawled 30 feet or so into the house, into the kitchen, un under the billowing smoke that was overhead, and found a six-year-old boy, unconscious. Um, apparently, he'd wandered somehow back into the into the house in all the confusion, and you know, the family in kind of a state of shock out in, out in the yard. Just hey, look, it didn't register. It happens. Uh, so he hauled him out uh, through the. Uh, through the smoke, and then uh, you know, put him in the arms of, uh, of another paramedic or whatever who'd arrived by then. Got the kid off to the hospital; he was fine. And um, wow, that's uh, 
that's kind of the face of heroism in America, isn't it? I thought so. And yet, you know, you look at um, a guy like Uncle David and um, you ask him what he, about what he did, he goes, don't call me a hero, I didn't do anything special. You know? yeah, which is kind of nonsense, actually. It's, also, it's double nonsense in his own case, because actually this was the, this was his second uh, rodeo, so to speak, in, the, in his youth. He had been a lifeguard who'd had occasion to pull somebody who was drowning out of the water at one point. Um, so, I mean, I, this, is a, this is really interesting uh, conduct, you know. I, I, there's, a, there's a greatness here, but it is married to, uh, sort of in a way, inseparable from a kind of uh, uh, a, a generosity, I mean, a kind of spirit of, uh, you know, of uh, um, let's, let's, let's help, let's, let's do what we can to help when we can. Um, and uh, at the same time, you know, you, it's not a good idea if you're, to go into a burning building. <laughs> if, you're, if your goal is sort of making it through the day, it's not, probably not something you want to necessarily, I mean, the people who were running away from the Twin Towers on 9-11 were not acting irrationally. Um, nor were the people who were running into those towers. And that, it seemed to me, was you know, the story to tell. I've, I, David Robbins, I, I dedicated the book to him because he really did get the party started mm -hmm. in that sense. So um, as is appropriate for a uh, distinguished graduate of the University of Chicago, your, your inquiry, which is both political and philosophical as well, grows out of observation of a puzzle that arises from ordinary life, well, from life as we're living it, an extraordinary event from uh, within life as we live it. So the, the, there are other dimensions of your book, the philosophical and the political. I want to ask you about uh, both of those, and then we'll open up the conversation to the floor. So um, you are the author of a uh, book about Jesus and right. his political teaching. You are, uh, I'm going to expose you, Todd, a serious student of Hegel, and uh, yes, and uh, a 20th century interpreter of Hegel named Kojev. In this book, one encounters uh, Tocqueville and, uh, and other serious philosophers. Could you say something about um, uh, how the philosophical ideas orient, began to orient you toward the inquiry and how they have informed your analysis as you develop the argument? Sure. Um. I, you, you should probably bet, I have this friend um, who wrote a uh, quite wonderful book about Nietzsche. Uh, he's, uh, his name is Peter Berkowitz. Uh, it's, it's called uh, Nietzsche, The Ethics of an Immoralist. Uh, and uh, among other things in this uh, quite remarkable book, um, which won the, what prize was that? Uh, I don't remember. I, see, he's no hero. I can't even remember the names of his prizes. Um, uh, Peter makes the... Uh, uh, the observation that Nietzsche was always complaining uh, about how this low democratic sensibility, man, you know, has, has, is, is just taking over the world and it's depriving the world of what that which has made it thrive and made life worth living. And that is this aristocratic sensibility, uh, the, the, the true... Uh, the truly great societies were, the, were aristocratic societies, which entailed masters and slaves, I might add. Um, and Peter ra raises the extremely interesting question in this book, well, how exactly is it that this low thing, uh, this, uh, 
this democratic sensibility and all of its lowness is somehow managing to overcome this higher type. Um, and that's a pretty good question. Um, and Nietzsche doesn't have a very good answer for it at all. I mean, he talks about well, intermarriage, you know, with the low and the high, this kind of dilutes the high. And, you know, no, it's, it's, a, it's an entirely unsatisfactory response. And I think it's an important question because, um, uh, you know, if you um, take a view of, uh, uh, if you take Nietzsche's view of the modern world, which you should not, um, you know, what you, what you see everywhere is what Tocqueville described in somewhat more benign terms, but still largely, which is this sort of falling away of this older set of virtues, these higher aristocratic virtues. Uh, uh, Jim Bowman's here, he's written a terrific book about uh, honor uh, in which uh, he's uh, uh, talked talk through a lot of these problems in a very interesting way. And, um, and there's, uh, there's, so this, 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 this rap sheet on modernity. Uh, that says, you know, it's just a bunch of uh, lower types somehow managed to get control of everything, and now they run it for the benefit of the lower types, and the poor higher types can't flourish anymore, and all is uh, reduced to, you know, mediocrity and uh, uh, men without chests, Nietzsche's phrase. Um, and, you know, frankly, I think that's kind of bullshit. Um, I think that there's plenty of opportunity in the modern world for uh, our version of uh, the higher type to flourish, and I don't think it's necessarily a lower version uh, of the higher type. Uh, and in fact, you know, in a way, the, my, the, the proof of this that I offer is precisely this life-risking, life-saving hero, uh, who, again, no less willing, uh, in a way, than uh, uh, Achilles to... Uh, lay it all on the line, but not in order to demonstrate superiority, uh, but rather out of the sense of appreciation for the spirit of equality the, that animates the modern world. I read, um, uh, for the, in the course of this book, I did a detailed content analysis of all the citations for the Congressional Medal of Honor that have uh, been issued since the beginning of the award in the uh, Civil War era. Um, and it's uh, quite interesting. We, we, we decided to, uh, we, we had a classification system uh, in which we evaluated the citations for the amount of reference to saving uh, lives that appears in them. And there, these go back, you know, the first, first World War, they're, they're the guys who threw themselves on grenades and died, uh, but saved their uh, comrades and received the nation's highest military honor for that. Um, but what you see in, the, um, in, in these awards are a couple of things uh, over the course of time. One is that um, there's absolutely, the, there's no shortage of Achilles-like, uh, the Greek word is aristia. I don't speak Greek, but you know, okay, right, I don't even read it. But, uh, but aristia, it was, it was the best of war fighting. It was the, the murderous rampage. It's Achilles with his spear and, you know, going after and shoving it into the throat of this one and hacking that, you know. Uh, and, you know, there's real, I mean, these, these Medal of Honor citations are absolutely harrowing in terms of the kind of conduct that they describe. You know, he charges up the hill and disables a pillbox with a hand grenade and is wounded, but then advances and kills five Germans and, and on, and, yeah, and so on. It's, it's really, I mean, this, that, it, it's a very, uh, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's brutal and it's uh, not different. But what's different 
is uh, over time, these uh, citations are much more likely to include a saving, a life-saving element to the narrative. Uh, so, uh, you know, he, uh, uh, under serious, you know, under, under great enemy fire from rocket pelvic grenades and machine guns, he advanced to a, uh, unprotected, uh, to a, provide aid to a wounded comrade and brought him back to safety. And then the wounded advanced once again to, uh, to another position where, uh, you know, it's, it's, this, it's this kind of story. So I, I think it's meaningful uh, when uh, the, the conduct that uh, the military itself uh, chooses for its highest honor uh, involves is also this, this life-saving uh, component. You know, I think that's, that's very much in keeping with the spirit of the age. And it in no way diminishes um, the uh, ability of the um, special operations guys and the rangers and such, uh, the, the real soldiers, soldiers, to you know, deal violent death. They, uh, that is their job at times. Uh, and they are not hesitant, and they're very good at it. Um, they have an excellence uh, that is worthy of the ancient world. Um, but you know, they're not, they're not, they're not Achilles. You know, they're doing it for country, uh, you know, for us, for you, you know, that kind of thing. One, excuse me, one final question from me. Flows out of uh, your last remarks. We see, uh, we can now speak in grand terms, but the rise of the modern world, the rise of what Charles Taylor called the universal benevolent conscience, um, especially in uh, following World War II. We've seen on the international scene, especially in the West, a concern with uh, human rights, and, uh, atrocity prevention in the last decade, maybe deca decade and a half, concern with the uh, and defense of this idea of the responsibility to protect. And these are issues that you've uh, worked on a great deal over the last decade or so. Um, what have you learned about from working in the fields of human rights, atrocity prevention, articulating, uh, exploring the responsibility to protect that sort of fed into the argument of uh, the heroic heart? Yeah, uh, well, I think um, you don't have to look very far to see um, the effects of uh, situations that uh, began uh, uh, with uh, dictators deciding to open fire on their people. Um, then sort of spiraling out of control, now creating a pretty much a first magnitude crisis in Europe and, uh, and elsewhere. Um, you know, the, I've always thought that, um, that there is a, uh, a moral responsibility that devolves to those with abundance um, toward those who don't have such things and are sometimes even at you know, risk of losing even what little they have, their lives. Uh, and uh, uh, and I, you know, I, I don't say that 
that this responsibility is um, trumps everything else. Um, but I do think it's it it needs to be present, uh, and I think when Obama said that um, uh, preventing genocide and mass atrocities was quote a, a core moral a core national security interest and a core moral responsibility, unquote, of the United States, that he was right. Um, and I think that there is actually no better uh, illustration of this than the case of Syria, uh, in which we did not act uh, in accordance with that stated core national security uh, and core moral responsibility. Um, we now have in Syria a, a multi-generational problem that will cost um, scores of billions of dollars to ameliorate, and there is no particular, uh, I, I, I haven't followed the day's events up at the, the General Assembly, but I, I, I'm, I'm guessing that the, that the end is not near. Um, and uh, I think these are, you know, these are serious issues. Mm -hmm.